everybody, and welcome to Texas State Choirs Today. Today we are speaking with renowned American composer Gwyneth Walker, who's been on campus with us since uh, two days ago, and we've had an exciting bunch of rehearsals with her. She's taught classes, and now we're just going to have a chance to just talk to her and find a little bit more about Gwyneth Walker. Gwyneth, welcome to the program. Thank you. So wow. happy to have you here. What a, it's, this is Texas State Choir. This is Texas State Choirs Today. Today. We just launched this this Never year. Never been on this program before. I, I've had my music on the Ellen Show and other I things. I know you have. What but did they never do on te- Ellen? Never Texas State Choir Today show. This Vermont Public first. Radio, yes. Hi, Vermont and uh, Connecticut Public Radio, yes, but never... Texas State Choirs today. Well, uh, wonderful and, and welcome. Uh, most of our listeners are undergraduate music majors. Great. Uh, so I always like to ask about your undergraduate experience and not just about the degree program, but what was your overall experience in undergrad? Where, where did you go to undergraduate school? Uh, yes, and actually I did not go to a music school for undergraduate. I went to Brown University, which it turned out had a, a good music department, but that wasn't initially why I chose it. So it turned out well for me. Let me explain it this way. I come from a science background. My father and his father and many before him were scientists, inventors, eccentric inventors. So think of that. And I was always good with sciences in school, science and sports. Those were my big things. But I always wrote music and people just thought, well, that's nice. That's nice. They didn't make anything of it. You know, I suppose if I had been an opera singer or something, if I'd had an outstanding voice, they might have said something. But what do you do with a child who likes to tinker at the piano and then write notes down? You know, especially a little girl doing that half the day. You just think, well, chip off the old block. That's John Walker's daughter. But they didn't make much of it. And music was just a nice little hobby. Then I went to a, a good secondary school. It's now Andover. It was Academy, part of Andover in Massachusetts, and they had a wonderful music program, and that was great. Many, many choirs for singing, and I had a folk group for which I did the arranging, and the school was so pleased with that. They had me writing arrangements for the boys' school, Exeter, you know, and uh, we made a record with our singing group, and our music teacher was the first to buy it. So I got a lot of support. And I was the school song leader, so every athletic event, I was the rally leader right up front. I don't know how one could have done more music than I did. And still, when it came to colleges, the guidance counselors saw my straight A's in science and knew my father and said, well, you'll be you know, going to study. And Brown University had Pembroke College, so it was like a Sister 7 Ivy League combined. Sure. So it's the natural choice. But nobody other than maybe the music teacher at Abbott, who was adjunct and didn't have much input, would have said, but but what about her music? Don't you think of her with music? But they didn't. Well, a little girl writing arrangements for chorus or original compositions, that meant nothing. That was a little hobby. So off I went to <laughs> Brown University as a tennis-playing physics major who loved to write music. And when I got there, I opened the course catalog book, and I saw all those music courses. My God, you know, theory one, two, three, four, orchestration. Those were the things that interested me, not the history of Baroque music. That was no interest (laughs) to me whatsoever. So I went right down to the music department, freshman week, 
I'd, I'd already signed up for my physics courses and your obligatory literature class or whatever you're supposed to take. But I said, I'd like to take some music courses. And Ron Nelson, the professor there, looked at me Who's across. a very renowned composer Yes, himself. he looked I've at me across the desk. And he, I just remember that. It was, you know, in this lovely mansion in Providence, Rhode Island, in this old building. And he had a desk. And I said, I've been doing some composing. And he sort of nodded. So, you know, this Pembroke girl. Well, you know, she thinks she's going to do something with music. So, But he just asked me some questions. He said, oh, you've studied some music theory? And I said, yes, mostly I taught myself, but I had been through one of the books, so I knew something. And he asked, what's a 6-4 chord? And I said, oh, that's the second inversion. And then he said, what it would be a secondary dominant in the key of F or something, and I told him right away, and he was so surprised. And he said, well, you may not study music theory at Brown. And I said, why not? He said, you're exempt. You're going to write for the orchestra. So, kapum, I was writing... I was in with seniors, all seniors, and me in this orchestration class that's only given every other year. So that's why he had thought, oh, another body to put in that class. class. And plus, he was an expert orchestrator. So I did a little bit of uh, counterpoint, whatever was available for me to take other than music theory, and then orchestration my freshman year. I wrote a piece for the orchestra. It was played. They could actually play it. I immediately switched my major to music. And for the next of the four years, I had independent study with composer Ron Nelson or Paul Nelson. I didn't have much theory because, as I said, I was exempted. I had to take some music history, which wasn't appealing to me other than Bartok. They had a class on Bartok, string quartets, and then a 20th century music. That was fine. I never did take Bach. I left, I graduated Brown with honors in music, and I could not have told you the difference between Bach and Beethoven. I skipped those courses <laughs> carefully. But I, had I think a, a bunch of our students would probably <laughs> yeah, like yeah. to go that, that then, route, too. Then when I went to graduate school at the Hart School of Music, um, I had to cram like crazy, so I didn't get placed back in a course for Bach and Beethoven. Mm-hmm. So I crammed like crazy on the entrance exams. and I. So I, to this day, I really apologize to you music historians, but I have a doctorate in music, and really my biggest hole would be in the Baroque classical era. You know, that's not I I know enough, you know, to to not embarrass people. But that was that. So I was lavished with individual attention. Ron Nelson or Paul Nelson. Each semester I had private study. And, and that's so much stronger, oh. one-on-one rather than a class. You just take so much I don't so see much how you in. learn composition in a class, in a classroom. but most people have to, so I don't mm-hmm. want to be that snobby. When I went to graduate school at the Hart School and I studied composition, there would be three or four students in the class. And the class met several times a week, and most of the time those guys didn't have anything ready, new. Mm-hmm. So once again, I was getting individual attention because I always had things. So at Brown, it was great. I mean, I had all this attention, and I was in a vocal singing group, an octet that was really good. So I was singing and writing. I did all the arrangements all the time and getting a lot of individual attention, even though it was a liberal arts School. So that was my experience. You mentioned earlier, I want to get back to uh, your tennis career. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a whole nother <laughs> side. Tell us about you as a tennis player. 
Well, I grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut, which is still where I have a home now. And the values of New Canaan, it's mostly banking and commuters to New York. Not my father, an inventor, but most of New Canaan is money, making money. Mm -hmm. It still is. It's near Greenwich, Connecticut, you know what I mean, near New York City. And sports, that's really big. And on my mother's side of the family, they were not eccentric adventurers like my father. They were much more down to earth. And there were quite a few athletes in my heritage on that side. And my grandfather had been one of the founders of the New Canaan Country Club. All he wanted was a simple tennis court and a pump for water. It's now one of these, you know, very expensive, exclusive places that I can't even get into myself. But originally, so we lived on Country Club Road. And from the time I was a child, my father, who wanted to learn how to play tennis, would hit balls with me there. Even Mm -hmm. though he wasn't that athletic, he wanted to learn. And I took to it like a duck to water, and we were right there, you know. So I became quite good at this. And I had a lot of pressure from my father to win, win, and win. Mm -hmm. And New Canaan win, win, win. So I became a really cutthroat winning tournament player. You know, I just refused to lose. I was strong-willed and I was, I had a natural coordination from my mother's side of the family. So I won tournament after tournament and was sent to tennis camps and played regionally and nationally. And, you know, that was a big deal for me. It got to be a certain point where I had to kind of choose the direction of my life. Did I want to beat people and see them cry on the tennis court or would I like to do something that was more rewarding, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of the spirit? And my Quaker spirit kicked in there and I gave up the beating people so that I still play tennis now for fun. And it's wonderful. It's great exercise. It's considered the top sport to play for your bones. You know, as we senior citizens get to that age, we need to worry about are strong bones. And tennis, because of the running and the hitting, you know, uses the arms and the legs. And I play singles with a, a friend, a younger fellow, and we I just laugh. Anytime I can run for the ball, you know, I think, isn't that great? I have a career as a composer with a sedentary lifestyle at my desk, and I can still get out there and, and move around. Exercise. It gives me That's more great. fun, though, when I run him, because we have these points, and I usually end up running him And then at the end, I'll see him doubled over. And I said, one of us ran a lot in that point, and it wasn't me. (laughs) So he's waiting for me to return right now for his health. Right. I I think it's a wonderful example of being, of having something else, being diverse. I, I know in my own career... I had a my my mother always told me you need a hobby, and for a long time I said, "Well, my career is my hobby." No, but no. as I get older, no, that's not all. That's not how it goes. No, sports is my hobby. I love to watch sports on the TV when when not when I'm composing or maybe when I'm just editing or something. I I enjoy sports and a hobby is good if you get so engrossed in it you forget about the other things okay so frankly when i'm playing tennis for that hour and a half i'm really not thinking about music at all and we need that break every every once in a while and everything that we do that isn't music informs our music everything we have in our life for informs us artistically so uh, uh what, what a wonderful other side, <laughs> you know, something completely different. I, 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 I live right across the street from the tennis courts, and most of the people there did not know that I wrote music. 
for quite a while until one of them by accident stumbled into a concert of mine. He was there to hear his sister sing. He had no idea that I wrote the music for the concert till the end because he didn't even know to look down in the program to see who had written it. Mm -hmm. He was just looking at his sister. And this concert, by the way, was at Carnegie Hall. And boy, this tennis friend of mine just about fell over when he out onto the stage I came. And he came up to me and then he couldn't speak. His jaw just dropped. He did not know what to say. But to this day, I enjoy seeing Dan out there on the the courts. On the courts, yeah. yeah. You mentioned earlier uh, that you were raised a Quaker. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that's informed your music and your life? Yes, and actually, believe it or not, I wasn't raised in the Quaker faith, even though I'm an 11th generation Quaker. Religion didn't mean anything to my mother. She never told me. So we went to the Congregational Church. It's like the universe, uh, the um, United Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's a Protestant. It was right next to our house in New Canaan. And I thought that that was great. I loved that. And uh, I was very active in the youth fellowship. I don't think it had anything to do with my music, but I, you know, I sang in the choir and mm-hmm. played the piano and played the organ, self-taught. But uh, we were right there. And then when I was 15, I was sent to a tennis camp in Pennsylvania. And it happened to be on the grounds of the West Town Friends School. In, uh-huh. They had 20 tennis courts at school. And, so and there friend was a tennis. schools are Quaker schools. Yeah, yeah. So on Sunday, they took us little campers to the friends meeting, um, which was a terrible thing to do to the local Quakers. Imagine trying to sit quietly, <laughs> thinking on God's presence in your life. And 50 tennis campers who are already overly energetic, who are not Quakers and very competitive kids. Mm-hmm get thrust into your meeting, you know, the whole time. <laughs> a little bit but of a distraction. I loved the, the meeting. And so um, at the end of the summer, I came home and I said, Mom, you know, I really like that Quaker meeting. And she turned around. She said, oh, well, dear, do you know you come from a Quaker background? I said, I do. She had never mentioned it. It just wasn't not, it wasn't religion didn't mean anything to her. And since then, she did a lot with genealogy. So I know that there are 11 generations coming from 1640 to me here. But it, my mother... You know, we'll have to say it's ten plus because mm-hmm. she was kind of. But my grandmother was much more of a Quaker, a, a suffragette, egalitarian, strong woman. That was my grandmother, so I I knew her. Now, of course, Quakers do not have music during service during the meeting, mm-hmm. so it's not as though I would have heard songs and music at a Quaker meeting that inspired me. That's not it at all. Um, Of course, there are songs that Quakers would sing at a campfire or any gathering, but during that one hour of worship, it's silent, so you can actually listen to God's voice within you. And then occasionally people will speak near the end of the meeting, if they're moved to speak, on causes usually like peace, environment, egalitarian, you know, welcoming all. Um, But I know that um, God has a mission for me in this world, and it's been told to me by Quakers, just not not in meeting or in meeting, you know, that, yes, you know, this is good that you should be doing this with your music. So I get a lot of support that way. And Quaker values would be egalitarian. So I enjoy writing music for a community chorus or a professional chorus. It's all the same to me in terms of the importance to me. And when I travel and do my work, I try to remember values such as let's be of use to other people. (laughs) 
<laughs> this composing music shouldn't be just for my own pleasure, and it shouldn't be that I am attempting to become famous during this, doing this. It should be that if I can write music that other people of their own free will want to perform, and it seems to convey some of our messages of loving one another and loving this earth, then I am doing the right thing, and I feel backed in that. Wonderful. Thank you. That was a wonderful answer. You have an enormous output of choral music. You're, I, I, I know that your entire output is over 300 pieces total, instrumental and choral, but your choral work, and it's performed uh, constantly. We hear yes. your music yes. all the time. Thank you. <laughs> uh, do you have any favorites? What's what's a favorite composer uh, composition? Well, of course, of it's not really smart for a composer to say, "Well, this one," you know, because sometimes I haven't heard a piece for a long time, such as some of the ones you're doing on the concert tonight. And then when I hear it, I say, "Oh, I remember how that goes." So that that's okay. It's you know, an okay piece, <laughs> you know. Especially okay, you're doing dreams and dances, right? Yes. And what's the one that uh, the other conductor's doing? On your- uh, April Lovers. Oh, yeah. Now, that one, just out of the blue, to add that to the program is delightful. I mean, it sounds so great when they sing it. So I don't necessarily have favorites, but some pieces I wrote at certain times, like um, I have a large piece called I Thank You, God, which I composed for big chorus. And I wrote that at the time I was caring for my mother when she was dying. And... um, I know that it's tempting for a lot of people when you're in a difficult situation like that to set aside everything and just care for the person because you're so upset. But I was determined to keep writing because I felt that after that chapter was over, if I had stopped writing, I would feel doubly sad that I had lost my mother and I had lost my music. So Mm. I kept trying to write even though I didn't visit friends and I didn't play much tennis. I cared for my mother and I wrote that piece and it seems to have its own power because of it. So that's special. In spending time with you uh, this week, a lot of the compositions that you write are for very personal, specific moments, and it really stuck out with me with the session last night. You're talking about the piece for oh, yeah. the for the uh, hospice care. Yes, Would you just tell yes. us a little about that? Yes, and and I was when I was meeting with the ACDA chapter here, and even before you joined us with the meeting, the point was, you know, working with composers or commissioning composers. And and so uh, new works don't always arise by sort of general, generic, let us have a new work. It often arises because a new work is needed for a certain occasion, you know, a Mm -hmm. celebration or a memorial. And actually, I have quite a few memorial kind of pieces and weddings. I am very good at writing wedding music, and I say that only because every couple for whom I have written their wedding music is still married, and some of them Ah. was 40 years ago. It's a you're a good luck charm. (laughs) Love songs. (laughs) At any rate, um, back to this one. It's called Let the Life I've Lived Speak for Me. And it's a spiritual song, um, but the basic gist of it, as in terms of it being a memorial song sung with hospice people, is to say that 
at the end of my life, if there's uh, speaking or anything about me, don't try to say fancy things like she was the greatest composer from New Canaan, Connecticut, or uh, she had, you know, just let the life I've lived speak for me, such as these friends gathered here in this room would uh, speak for me at the memorial service being, this is who I knew, this is what I did. And then the life I've lived, just if people would say, you know, she was a, a nice person, and whenever we needed our neighbor to help, she was there. So it's that basic, and that in a way is a Quaker thing too. Don't try to be fancy and self-promoting, but just this is who I was, this is what I did. So a friend of mine who leads some singing at a hospice, actually, he's a, a choir director at Harvard University, and there's a little group that goes and sings at hospice. He knew that song as just a folk song. And when they would sing it, of course, they would just sing the melody for the first verse, and the melody for the second verse, and the melody for the third verse, or some sort of simple harmonization, but it would be all the same for three verses. And that's fine for hospice, but it doesn't work very well for a concert work. It's sure, too boring, yeah. you know. So my friend knew that I liked to enhance or tinker with songs and asked me if I could do something with this song. And I wasn't aspiring to have any great published work. I just thought, well, this would be something they could take with them, the Harvard students, they could learn the harmony, or if they wanted to sing it on a concert, that at least it would be interesting enough to, mm -hmm. to do that. but So I wrote it for them, and they liked it, and then I showed it to my publisher, and usually my publisher, E.C. Shermer, is backed up for years with my work, so it's no offense they can't put a new work in print because they still are still the last, the old ones. You know, But they immediately latched onto this and put it in print, and it reached a lot of people. I mean, it's on YouTube already, and I barely finished it, you know, and I heard it. Uh, they made a recording, and I get reviews of where it was sung, and it meant so much to people. And I just tried to take this simple song and use the technique I acquired by studying at the Hart School of Music, such as how to change the voicing for the different verses or to create a little interlude or to have the harmonies grow to be more full when you're talking about the fullness of your life and then to end in a very sparse manner. Let the life I've lived speak for me. And it ends with a very open, simple chord. This is just saying I simply was a person, a human being, and this is what I did. Yeah. As an aside, in you saying that that's yeah. uh, Quaker value yeah. of uh, just accept me as I am, and what you uh, uh, on your Wikipedia page, it has a very long paragraph about all of the awards you've won. I How, didn't write that Wikipedia uh, well, I'm page. I'm sure you did. I don't even know. I think I was you didn't hoping, know you had a Wikipedia um, page. No, my webmaster, the same person at, at Harvard, I asked him to take a look, and I think there were some inaccuracies originally. I think he corrected some things, or okay. whoever had written the first one definitely had a, a slant on, it was being a little bit flowery, so I think whatever. So that okay. kind of answers but, my question. Oh, well, so so, so oh. getting all these awards. No, I think that's what people do when they make the Wikipedia thing. They just if you find, look, but if it you doesn't look on my website, my bio doesn't say that kind of thing. It just no. says where I lived. And I have a really thorough website because I'm a very practical person. And uh, the whole gist of the website is just to list the pieces. And then if you want, you can click on the title and you can listen to the piece and look at a perusal PDF. And it, the whole idea is we're not going to say this is a wonderful composer who's won all these awards. Instead, to just say here are the pieces. And then basically you can say, 
oh, I like that piece. Or the opposite, you know, I, uh, that's not for me, but I don't want uh, – I want you to be able to make the decision if you like the music. So I, I try not to push, but I try to have it organized. No, I, I, I shudder now after you say that. You're going to go right I, in uh, and check. <laughs> no, I don't think you can change those things so easily. Actually, I don't know. But I, don't. I think that a lot of data about composers tends to be awards won. And the composer may have been just like me, not involved in that listing, but it's kind of an easy thing. And you see the same with bios of composers and performers in program notes. It just goes on and on about who they studied with and what awards they won. And at the very end, it says, so-and-so is in St. Paul, Minneapolis, with her three children and 12 goats or something like that. You say, great, that I enjoyed. That tells me something about her. Why did it have to be the last sentence? You know, why didn't I say, this is someone who loves animals and children and, and writes music about this and that, you know, in a more friendly manner. But instead we get assaulted with all this stuff. It's too much. Maybe doesn't really matter. That's interesting. <laughs> Since you went to goats, let's oh, talk no, no. about your dairy farm. Okay, but I don't know anything about goats. <laughs> and I don't. I do not own a dairy farm. I, I was a renter on a dairy farm for thirty years in Braintree, Vermont, and the reason for that. Am I talking too long? No. Am I going you on let too long? Go. Um, I, when I went to the Hart School of Music, I got my doctorate, and then I was able to get a job teaching at the Oberlin College Conservatory, and it was a wonderful job. And I thought, I will stay here forever. But it soon became apparent to me that there were not enough hours in the day to teach those wonderful students and to compose. And I was getting commissions, and I love writing, and I just thought, hmm, I'm going to have to make a choice. I can't do both. And I took a scary step when I was about 30, and I left my teaching job just to see if I could make a living as a composer. I did not know any composers making a living as a composer, but I had always been encouraged by people to write. Please write us another piece, and here's a check to cover your time. I thought, I should at least try this. So I said, step one, after I left Oberlin, live somewhere inexpensive, cheap, okay? Mm -hmm. And I love the country. And for m many people, living in the country means you must own a house, an acreage, you know. Mm -hmm. But instead, I was able to be a renter on a farm, in dairy farm in northern Vermont, in a community that loves music. Braintree is the tiny town 800 people, 1,000 cows. Randolph is the bigger town, 2,000 people, not as many cows. And we have a music hall, and the town loves music, and they have been very welcoming to me. So I thought that's where I should go, and I was able to be a renter on this farm, and I had all those acres, how many acres, 800 acres, no, that's the number of people. I think Farmer Bob ended up having about 1,000 acres of rolling hill dairy farm, cornfield. It was just the most beautiful place. And I could rent part of the farmhouse for $200 a month. And I said, I can do this because I had saved a little from Oberlin. And I said, I can afford to live here for two years on what I saved because of that meager thing. And then if the career doesn't work, if people don't want to pay me to write music, I know that I will at least have tried. But within one week of getting to Braintree, um, people commissioned me for pieces right there. And the governor, Madeline Cunin, took a fancy to my music. And whenever she came, all the press came. And, you know, things really worked out well for me. 
I did not know it was a dairy farm when I looked at this. Mm. It was foggy. It was April. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And somebody showed me this apartment on a, in a farmhouse. Now, I thought that meant like a ranch house. I thought that was just a style of a house. I did not know oh. that they really meant that. And it was so foggy. But when he said $200, I said, I can do that. And he said, you have to wait till July 1st when the person who owns this uh, is leaving. Mm-hmm. The person who really owned the whole wing was going to leave and Farmer Bob was going to become the owner and rent this. So I left. I still had no idea where it was except it seemed like the end of the earth to me. Mm-hmm. It was down this dirt road forever. So then I came back in July and it was dark. So I took my little futon and went up into my little new apartment. And the next morning I rolled up the shade <laughs> There were hundreds of cows right there looking at me. And Farmer Bob lived elsewhere. There was no one around. The other people in the farmhouse had gone off to work. And I I was just saying, what should I do? You know, I went to Andover. I went to a prestigious boarding school. I played tennis. I went to music school. I did not know anything about farming, but I immediately bonded with the cows. And, you know, they would just chew outside while I would write. And I learned how to get them out of the corn. Sometimes they misbehaved and I would jump up and down and and everything. I loved living on that farm. I don't live there anymore because Farmer Bob rented part of the house to bad people. So I now have a little place in the town of Randolph. But I go by the farm all the time. Wonderful. And I bet that was a wonderful, just the peacefulness to... Compose well, and not all oh, the well, no, but I mean, to get up. You, you, there's no way you're going to stay in bed in the morning when you can hear all the, everybody else is up and you hear the farm equipment. And there's a barn, a big milking barn. I mean, friends would come to visit me right from New York City and I'd take them to the milking barn, <laughs> which they seem to enjoy. Oh, yeah. No, I, I we thought don't it all was. We all get to see things. We, there, like that. A farm is a place where a lot of work is going on. A farm is not a place where you're going to sleep in or nap or anything. Sure. And it's not necessarily that quiet, but. When the farm equipment goes by, there's no music. Okay, so I can write with the farm equipment. But it's fascinating, the baler and the kicker and the, you know, harvester and the planting and the, you know, yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's a, a rigor stuff. And it's work. And yeah. Good, solid work. Let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, going through the commissioning process. If some, if someone wanted to commission a piece from you, what what what? process would they need to go through and okay. just talk us through I wouldn't that a encourage bit. too much of that at this time because I have already accepted projects <laughs> into the future that, uh, and one what is that when you see the shiny new marble isn't it? there a, you know I'll say oh that sounds so great I'll do that and then you realize that you've already committed to somebody else so right. you, uh-huh. the shiny new object shouldn't appeal to you but um let me see. Let me put this in a more general way. If you are a director of an ensemble, whether it's a chorus or an instrumental group, and you think that you're interested in new music or you'd like to have a new piece on the program, you think that would be interesting to you you and your community, community but you don't quite know how to go about it um, – you might want to consider if there are any special occasions coming up in the town, the centennial of the town or, or something, because there might be some funds right there. I've had things like that happen oh, sure. before. Yeah. Places, special places might have funds for a piece to be performed there in the library, in the old meeting house, the top brain tree hill. Different places have 
you know, they'd like to have a concert in their church and they have some money. Or I hate to say it, but in memory of, I get contacted by a group and they their accompanist passed away and they want to have a new choral work to mm-hmm. sing in memory of. So very often it's tied in with an occasion and that will help dictate the nature of the work. Of course, they'll tell you for whom, how long it is, mm. but they'll say this is in memory of so-and-so or this is to celebrate the centennial of such-and-such, and that will um, affect that. Now, in terms of price fee, I mean, I'm not going to come out with something like that, but um, when a, a composer is just starting out, one would pay them less. When the composer gets more advanced, one would expect to pay that person more. If the work involves instruments added to a chorus, like chorus and chamber ensemble, that raises the fee quite a bit because you have to extract each instrumental part. Right. So the, the fee thing would change depending on the length and the breadth of the piece, as well as the composer's stature. However, even though I've now written a lot of pieces and I might be I might have some stature. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to keep raising my fees up and up and up. And then I've now eliminated the very people who've supported me all my life, you know, community groups. You can't say, well, now I'm famous. I'm going to charge 10 times as much. And then, you know, it's just not fair. So you could raise your fee a little bit, but you want to keep within the budget of the sort of people you want to support. You can also have a sliding fee so that if a a high-budget professional group wants to commission something, you could ask them more than Mm -hmm. a similar work written for a community or school group. That that especially being a full time composer, that's mm. got to be a big part of your life of arranging the uh, you know, getting the commission. Of course, now yeah. in this part of your life, you're, you're overloaded. People, but getting people the do start them. Yeah, I get it. I never was one to get the. Uh, people have always come to me, even when I was first starting out. Of course, they came to me less frequently, but they would come to me. I always felt that that meant the people genuinely like the music if they did this of their own accord. I would never go to somebody and suggest they commission me. That would just feel yeah, awful. I guess that would feel, like, feel like awful. It's like saying, wouldn't you like to invite me to your party? And then you get to the party and you feel that everybody else actually was invited because they were wanted and you <laughs> forced your way in the door. So uh, I don't know. Where, where were we talking about this? Oh, well, uh, just about the commissioning process. If people, a, a young people person. People do. Oh, for a young person. Yeah, so a new person wants yeah, to commission I went, And I was explaining this to the composition class uh, that was not one of the ones you were at. But um, if a composer is just starting out, uh, go to the concerts in your community or school or nearby and just go and listen to what other people are doing. And then as you participate by just going, go and introduce yourself to the conductor at the end. But with an opening sentence such as, I really enjoyed your concert and I like that piece you put near the end. Just say a couple of things to show you are listening. Then after you've established some positive rapport, if you feel so inclined, say, you know, um, I'm new here, but I'm a composer myself. And say no more. Shut your mouth. The conductor will most likely say, you are? That's wonderful. Do you think, uh, do you have anything for our group? And even if you don't go home and write something, or Mm -hmm. the conductor might say, you know, we might be able to commission you to do something. And just, again, listen, you know, don't go out there forcing yourself as the first thing. Here I am. I'm a composer. You want to commission me. Mm -hmm. That's obnoxious. Like most conductors will sort of back off, back away. 
but just yeah, show an bit. interest. And it can be your high school. Let's say that you are so brazen as to think you want to write a piece for orchestra and you're new. Mm-hmm. Many times a local high school has at least a chamber orchestra and and they say, well, we'd be willing to at least read through or play a movement of something. That's how you start. You don't have to apply for grants for your, you know, basic symphony to play the work. Just start local with something small. That makes a lot of sense. And and I've worked with several young composers that were just eager to have their music listened and uh, uh, listened to and uh, they weren't interested in a fee at all they just wanted a, a venue right. yeah. To, yeah. To, to have their music performed yeah. and it was fun to give them well when I was in graduate school that would have been me but then when I decided to leave teaching and go live on the dairy farm then I definitely needed <laughs> to be paid for the work even yeah. if it wasn't a lot I needed something if let's say the $200 rent and whatever I needed and then a $500 commission just think how that works with your low budget that that $500 just covered your rent for 2 months and maybe some groceries yeah well no you just go out in the field and pick some oh when corn you're on the farm yeah. the <laughs> that's all taken care of oh, too uh, so. <laughs> Well, this has been such a pleasure talking to you. It's an honor to have you with us. We're looking forward to the concert tonight, and we've had a wonderful time with you you. on campus. Thank Thank you. you so much. This has been Texas State Choirs Today. Thank you for listening. Our recording engineer is Ian Flores. Our producer is Francis Nieves, and Mark Erickson is our recording consultant. This has been recorded at the historic Fire Station Studio in San Marcos, Texas. If you like our program, take a moment and rate us on iTunes. It really helps us grow our audience. I'm your host, Jonathan Babcock. Thank you for listening, and keep singing.